Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. So uh, wonderful to be back. It feels like it's been a while since I've been here. And uh, I have to say that when I travel, it just makes me appreciate uh, what we have here so much more. And brethren, I do hope that uh, you don't mind sharing me, uh, particularly with the the Ottawa brethren. Uh, I think most of you know that I came into the church in Ottawa, and and Ottawa just holds such special memories for me. It's it's where my life turned around physically and spiritually. And there's just something special about the city and and, and the brethren there, and I just feel an obligation uh, to help out there. So from time to time, I do want to get away and, and, and service our congregation there as well as our congregation in London. And before that, I was in Detroit visiting our brethren there and um, loving the opportunity actually to listen into the sermons that you had here by Pastor Murray. I think the, the sermon that you gave on the laying on of hands, I told you, is the, the best treatment of that topic that I've ever heard. And prior to that, the, the sermon on Proverbs 31 woman was just an excellent treatment of that chapter, which uh, there's a lot in there that most of us read over, just getting to the Proverbs 31 woman part. And I think Pastor Murray did an exceptional job of bringing out that meaning. And I appreciate uh, Jessica reading from that chapter. And when we started our congregation, we, we did have our young women reading scriptures. And one of the brethren took offense to that saying that the scripture says women must be silent in the church. So for about, I think it was six months, we asked the women to be patient, our young women to be patient, and to no longer read the scriptures, following the principle that if meat, eating meat offends your brother, then don't eat meat. So if our young ladies coming up here and reading scripture offended a brother, then we said, let's not do that. Let's look in the scripture, find out exactly what it means when it says women must be silent, And we did that. We did a very thorough study on the role of women in the church. And uh, Deacon Jan also addressed the topic in, I believe it was a sermon that he gave. And he made a statement, which, you know, he just made this statement, but it lodged in my brain, and it'll stay there. It was such a profound statement. He said, you can tell the health of a society by how it treats its women. And I thought about that and just thought, it is so true. As you look at societies, if you want to gauge the health of a society, look at how the the women are treated, and you'll get a sense right away. And so I hope here in our congregation, in our community, we accept that there is a role for women in the church. Particularly and specifically, there's a role for female leadership in the church. And I think whenever there is a dispute about whether or not women can be leaders or have leadership roles, it is usually coming from men who are insecure. And their insecurity forces them to oppress the women. Because if the women display any sort of ability, it calls into question their competence. And they feel threatened. Well, we don't want that here. You know, we don't want a congregation where people feel they have to turn their brain off in order to be a part of the congregation. And we don't want a congregation where people feel they have to suppress their gifts 
in order to be part of the congregation. Today, what I'd like to do is I would like to speak specifically to the young women. I think they are the most vulnerable in any society. And in fact, I was reading on the news uh, today, this week actually, um, there is a pastor that has started a church and has convinced his congregation that the firstborn daughter of every family should be given to him uh, to go to a camp where they'll be taught how to be women. And actually, when I say given to him, I mean given to him. They were abused for 10 years. And the parents supported this because they felt he was some sort of man of God. So how we treat our women, particularly our young women, is a barometer of how healthy our organization, our community is. So I want to speak to the young women. And by extension, I'm talking to the young men as well. Everything I say to the young women applies to the young men. And I think it applies to us as adults. Because even though we may have gray hair or no hair, it doesn't mean we're mature. We can be elderly and still very immature. So I want to talk about this process of maturity. What is it that makes us mature? As, as, you know, how does a girl become a Proverbs 31 woman? How does a boy become a Proverbs 31 man? How does a, a newly converted Christian become a mature Christian? Let's explore that today, this afternoon. And let's use as our example, and I really love the special music, you know, while some may see a shepherd boy, God may see a king. So even in the youth, God can see the full potential. And, and, and you know, rather than use King David, which is a phenomenal example, I'd like to use Esther as our example. Let's look at Esther and see how she went from being a girl, an immature girl, to a mature leader in Israel. So let's turn to the book of Esther and let's examine this process of becoming mature. So the book of Esther takes place in the Persian Empire. If you remember that Judah was taken captive by the Babylonians, and for 70 years they were in captivity until Cyrus the Great conquered the Babylonians, and then the world empire shifted to the Persians. And when he conquered the Babylonians, he was much more sophisticated, much more advanced as a leader. And rather than oppress his subjects, he actually liberated them. And, and what he said to the Jews was, if you want to, go back to Jerusalem and rebuild your temple. And here's a blank check. Whatever money you need, I'll give it to you so you can rebuild the temple. Well, you would think that everybody would go back to Jerusalem because there's no such thing as Judaism without the temple. But that wasn't the case. I don't remember the exact number, but I think it's around 50,000 went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. The other Jews stayed where they were. It's like, it's okay. We kind of built our lives now. It's okay. 
And so they, they didn't have as their priority rebuilding the temple. Even the Jews that went back to Jerusalem, you'll remember that Haggai went and basically said, what's going on here? Why, why, is, why have you stopped building the temple and you're building your own houses? And he had to get them back on task to rebuild the temple. And then even after that, Nehemiah went and said, why are the walls broken down? And, and he had to galvanize them. So, so even the ones that went back to Jerusalem were not fully engaged in God's priorities. How much less those that didn't go back to Jerusalem? And Esther and Mordecai are descendants of the Jews that chose not to go back to Jerusalem. And I think when we read this book, it's easy to fall into a romantic view and think, well, because they're Jews, they must be righteous people, they must be heroic people. Um, The Bible is just very real, and it just deals with real, complex human beings. And so before we get into the book, don't be surprised if these people are not perfect. Don't be surprised if they have glaring flaws. Okay? So we come into this. This is a time, Esther. Is, it's between Zerubbabel and Nehemiah. So some people have gone back to Jerusalem. They've started to rebuild the temple. And, and some people have stayed back. Esther and Mordecai are in this category of Jews that stayed back. And we begin in Esther chapter 1, verse 1 with King Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, who is a, who is, so Cyrus, Darius, and then Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus I'll just call him Xerxes, so I'll be like, uh, like Jan earlier today, I just say Lazarus, <laughs> it's difficult. Okay, so King Xerxes. It came to pass in the days of Xerxes, this is Xerxes which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over 107 and 20 provinces. So this is a vast, vast kingdom. It's basically ruling the known world. In those days, when King Xerxes, let's say Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, sat on the throne of his kingdom, which is in Shushan, the palace, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast. And so this book is full of feasts. And this is a feast that he made unto all his princes and his servants. The power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him. So he is about to launch a war on Greece. So the Greco-Roman or the Greco Empire is beginning to emerge. They're nipping at the heels of Persia. And he's galvanizing his men now to get ready for a, a battle with the Greeks. And so he calls all of the satraps, the noblemen, in and puts on this feast that lasts six months six months to really galvanize them and prepare them for battle. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even six months. So he's really trying to show them how powerful he is. Verse 10, if we drop down to verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, we would say he was drunk. Okay, So he's had a lot of wine and he's just... Uh, a bit intoxicated. He commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus, the king, to bring Vashti, the queen, before the king with the royal crown, to show the people and the princess her beauty, for she was fair to look upon. So again, he's trying to impress his people 
with how powerful he is, with his resources, even the beauty of his wife. But the Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. And personally, I've heard people criticize Vashti for this, but it seems reasonable to me. It seems like the modest thing to do. So in in Persian culture, you even see it today with Iran and Iraq, uh, women do not display themselves in front of men. But the king is a bit drunk, and he wants the men to see how beautiful she is. And, And she's just, all the men are drunk. For her to come and display herself in front of these men, it's immodest. So she chose, she, she could not go against her modesty, and she chose not to obey the king. Therefore, the king was very angry, and his anger burned in him. And verse 20, so he then issues a decree. Uh, basically, I know Pastor Murray mentioned the women's liberation movement, that the reason it was necessary was because of how men were treating women, and that had men treated women well, there'd be no reason to have a women's liberation movement. Well, here you have the beginning of a women's liberation movement, and it gets squelched because the men realize, wow, if this gets out, that the queen doesn't even obey the king, then what hope does a man have for his wife to obey him? So they counsel with the king and say, what you have to do is you have to depose Queen Vashti and get somebody else in her place. So verse 20, when the king's decree, which he shall make, shall be published throughout all his empire, for it is great. So again, this is a big empire. All the wives shall give to their husbands honor, both to great and small. So this is what we would call forced honor, right? This is not inspired honor. If men were noble, if men were honorable, if the king was honorable, then women would honor their men. But if we're not going to do that, then we have to do it by force. And so here the king is demonstrating power and, and putting down this potential for a women's liberation movement. Chapter 2. Let's continue the story. Chapter 2. Here's, here's the concept now. Here's the idea that's given to the king. Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him. So he's now he's a bit lonely. He doesn't have his wife. Uh, let there be fair young virgins sought for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom. Remember, this is a vast kingdom. This is a va- it opens up telling us how big the kingdom is. And now the idea is to go through the kingdom and find all the young virgins. So again, we say we can tell you know, a, a society by how it treats its young women. Well, here we're going to go through, find, collect all the beautiful young women that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan. So bring them all to Shushan, the palace, to the house of the women, basically the harem, unto the custody of Hegi, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let their things for purification be given them. So go through the empire, and any young virgin that you see that's fair to look upon, basically arrest her and bring her to the palace and make her a part of the king's harem. And then let the king go through and decide which one should be queen. Verse 4. And the maiden which pleased the king, and let the maiden which pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And the thing pleased the king, and he did so. So I don't know how many women this is, but it's a vast empire. I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say a million women, a million young virgins, maybe two, maybe five. I, I don't, it's, it's a lot of women. Even if we say, okay, Adrian, you're exaggerating. Let's say 100,000. Will you, will you go with 100,000? 
Okay. It's a lot of women. Okay. Now, in Shushan, the palace, verse 5, there was a certain Jew. So in, in Shushan, there was a Jew whose name was Mordecai. So now we come to Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. So hold this thought. The author finds it important that when he introduces Mordecai, that he lets us know he's from the tribe of Benjamin. So this is not an irrelevant detail. This is something that's important. He's setting us up, and he's saying this Jew is actually a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther. So her Jewish name is Hadassah. Esther is a Babylonian name, probably means Ishtar, Easter. Uh, so it's not her proper name. Her proper name is Hadassah, but we know her as Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. So she was an orphan. She was an orphan. And the maid was fair and beautiful. Whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, and it doesn't say how they died, but again with all of this conquest and uh, being captive, who knows what happened, but they died. He took for his own daughter. So he was, his, he was the uncle, and now he adopted her as his daughter. So this is Mordecai's daughter. So it came to pass, verse 8, when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, when many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan, the palace, to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was brought also unto the king's house. When we read that, we shouldn't read over that. This, this is tragic. Here is a daughter of Judah that's basically been arrested by the king to do whatever he wants with. So she was brought also unto the king's house, to the custody of Haggai, to the keeper of the women. So now we are introduced to Esther. And what I'd like to point out to the young ladies, and to the young men as well, is that our first introduction to Esther, she's a child. She is being acted upon. She's not acting. She's passive. She's docile. She does as she's told. So our first introduction to Esther is she's basically dragged out of her house and taken to the palace. This is how we come to know Esther. She's weak, and she's told what to do. Verse 9. And the maiden pleased him. That's speaking of Haggai, the keeper of the women, the one who runs the harem. She pleased Haggai. So again, uh, it's all about the men. She's just an object. And she obtained kindness of him. And he speedily gave her her things for purification. With such things as belonged to her, and seven maidens, which were meet to be given her out of the king's house. And he preferred her and her maids unto the best place of the house of the women. So he sees something in her and decides to look after her and give her favor. Verse 10, Esther had not showed her people 
nor her kindred. So she did not reveal that she's a Jew. Why? Because Mordecai had commanded her that she should not show it. So our introduction to Esther is a young girl who does as she's told. So she goes into the king's palace, and I I hate to be crude, but if she has to commit fornication in the king's palace, Mordecai is saying, just don't tell them who you are. So, so, you know, these are Jews by blood. Let's not get all righteous and think that they're perfect people. So Mordecai is basically saying, hey, you're in the king's palace. That's pretty good. It's like winning the lottery. If we have to compromise our values a little bit, oh well. Just don't tell them you're Jewish. And so she obeys. So again, we're seeing Esther's character here as someone who is very compliant, very obedient. Verse 13. Then thus came every maiden unto the king. So there's this basically Persia's next top model. And uh, they're all trying to beautify themselves. And then they're presented to the king one by one. And uh, they get to spend one night with the king. And then the one that pleases him the most is the one that would be queen. Then thus came every maiden unto the king. Whatsoever she desired was given to her. So again, let's not read over this. Um, If the woman wanted something, she could have it. So, So, you know, women have personalities. They have desires. They're not just objects. So if the woman wanted something, she could have it. Whatsoever she desired was given her to go with her out of the house of the women unto the king's house. In the evening she went, and on the morrow she returned into the second house of the women. So it seems like there's one house over here where they get ready. They leave that house, they go to the king's house where they spend the night. king does whatever he wants and decides whether or not he likes them. And then they leave that and they go to yet another house, which is sort of the after house. In the evening she went, and on the morrow she returned into the second house of the women, to the custody of Shashgaz. So first they're under the custody of Hegai, where they're getting ready. Then afterwards they're in the custody of Shashgaz, which is the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubines. So these are now the concubines, where if the king ever wants to revisit them, he can. Uh, But they're now kept under a different guard. She came in unto the king no more, except the king delighted in her that she were called by name. So it's not so she may not be queen, but the king might say, you know, I remember, I don't know, I won't say any name in case I get myself in trouble, but he remembers some, some young lady that he thought was nice. Oh, send, send her for me because I feel like some entertainment. So that's, that's the life now of the, the concubines. Now, when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter. So she's under Mordecai's charge. And Mordecai is basically saying to her, it's okay. You know, we'll just sort of bend the commandment a little bit here. And you just do as you're told. Who had taken her for his daughter was come to go in unto the king. So remember, the women can have anything they want. And here again, we're seeing Esther's character. She required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed. So again, here we're seeing a young girl, and I, I hate to say it like this, but you know, ha- seems to have no will of her own, almost no mind of her own. It's whatever people tell her to do 
That's what she does. So first Mordecai is telling her what to do. Now Haggai is telling her what to do. And she's just very compliant. So she takes his advice and uh, only takes what he tells her to take. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. So obviously she was very beautiful to look at. But she also had a very uh, beautiful nature, a nature that was not offensive to anybody. Verse 16, so Esther was taken unto King Ahasuerus into his house royal in the 10th month, which is the month to Beth, in the 17th year of his reign. And the king loved Esther above all women. Again, we don't know what Esther thinks. Esther seems to be an invisible woman. She seems to have no will of her own. But she's a beautiful woman, and we see here that the king loves her above all the women. So you can imagine, this is a vast empire, and there's all kinds of different nations and cultures and beautiful women all over. And all of these beautiful women are gathered uh, to the point where you know the king has complete choice. He's going through all of them. How is it possible that anyone could stand out? And yet Esther, there's something about her that just really stands out so much that the king not only says, I choose her, he loves her. He really falls in love for this young maiden. So the king loves Esther. We don't know what Esther thinks. So she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So now we have Queen Esther. Verse 18. Then the king made a great feast, another feast, unto all his princes and his servants, even Esther's feast. And he made a release to the provinces and gave gifts according to the state of the king. Verse 19. Esther is now queen. She's chosen above all the women. All the other virgins are sidelined. And yet in verse 19 it says, when the virgins were gathered together the second time. So, you know, this is speaking of King Ahasuerus' character. Women are playthings. There's something about Esther that really captures his attention. But, oh yeah, all those beautiful women, let's gather them again a second time and let me start going through them again. Then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her. So again, we just keep seeing this reinforcement of Esther's character. She has no mind of her own. She has no will of her own. She does as she's told. For Esther did the commandment of Mordecai, like as when she brought up with him. In other words, she's still a child. It's just like when she was being brought up as a child and she did as she was told. She's still doing as she's told. This is not a mature woman. This is an immature woman. And she hasn't grown up yet. So, so let's explore what, what is the transition point. How does Esther go from being this docile, compliant invisible woman with really no will of her own to where we will see later she becomes the leader in Judah. She actually saves the nation. How does that transition happen? How does it occur? 
Let's drop down now. I'll continue in verse 21, uh, just to continue the story. In those days while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, so these are people very close to the king, have access to him all the time, Big Than and Teresh, of those which kept the door, so they're supposed to be his guards, they were angry, so something angered them. Uh, you know, maybe it was all these young virgins, maybe their own daughters were caught up in all of this. Something angered them. And they sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. And the thing was known to Mordecai. So Mordecai is this Jew that happens to be around, and, and maybe they're just sort of talking openly around him because they don't think he's anybody, not realizing he's actually related to the queen. So he hears this, and he told it to Esther, the queen. And Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. So she told the king and gave credit to Mordecai. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out, therefore, they were both hanged on a tree. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles of the King. Chapter 3, verse 1. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman. So suddenly we have a new character enter the story, and it's Haman, and he enters the story being promoted. So we just, he comes into the story, and he, wherever, whatever station he was at, he's now promoted to a higher station after Mordecai just saved the king's life. So there's some sort of, something's being set up here where we see Mordecai's this hero, gets no recognition, and suddenly Haman comes on the scene, and he's recognized. And earlier, when we were introduced to Mordecai, it was made clear to us that he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Now we're introduced to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. So the author wants us to know now, this is an Agagite. And advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. So Haman now becomes the second in command. So you've got the king, and then you've got Haman. That's how powerful he's become. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed, and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. So there is a command that has gone out from King Ahasuerus, saying this man is second in command, and everybody will show him honor. Everybody will bow to him on commandment of the king. But Mordecai didn't bow. Mordecai didn't, the king gave a command, whenever this man appears, show him honor. Mordecai didn't bow, nor show him any reverence. Now, I'm just a little bit confused, because it seems here like Mordecai has enough backbone in him to disobey the king's command. That, that's what I'm reading. And yet when the king commanded that all the virgins be gathered up for fornication. I didn't see any backbone in Mordecai then. So a bit of a problem here. So there's something, if, if God's law was the priority, then Mordecai would have stood up for Esther on pain of death because we're not going to break God's law. And yet there's nothing in God's law that says you can't show honor to the king. And yet Mordecai takes it upon himself for his own personal reasons, to disobey the, 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 the king's command. 
And it goes back to this thing that Mordecai is a Benjamite. And this man is an Agagite. And that's a problem. And let's see, continue in uh, verse 3. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why are you breaking the king's command? Aren't you afraid of the king? You're openly breaking the king's command. Now it came to pass when they spoke daily unto him. This was going on day after day after day. He's breaking the king's command. Suddenly he's got backbone. That They speak to him daily that he didn't listen to them. So they told Haman. So maybe Haman didn't even notice. There's so many people. But they pointed it out. This guy does not bow to you. To see whether Mordecai's matter should stand. For he told them that he was a Jew. So he's telling them, the reason I can't bow to Haman is because I'm a Jew. Well, I don't know what that means. Because he's not pointing to the Torah. There's nothing in the Torah that says he can't bow to a king. In fact, the, the Jews did that. They would bow to their king. God. There's a passage where David bows to King Saul and shows him honor. So I don't know where he's getting this, but he's saying it's because I'm a Jew. I would think when they come and they arrest his daughter, that he would say, no, you can't take her. Why? Because I'm a Jew. We just don't do that. But there's some sort of personal agenda here that he's now standing up. Verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai wouldn't bow to him, nor do him reverence, then Haman was full of wrath. So this guy we're seeing is somebody who comes on the scene, gets promoted to the highest possible office, wants to be honored, and somehow Mordecai has backbone enough not to show him any honor, and he becomes furious. Verse 6. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So his initial response was, I'm going to take care of this guy. How dare him? That was the initial response. For they had showed him the people of Mordecai. So now he learns who Mordecai comes from. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. So it goes from, you're not showing me respect, I'm going to teach you a lesson to I learn who your people are, to I'm going to now commit genocide. I'm going to wipe out every single Jew on the planet now that I've learned who you are. To destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. So let's try to understand what's happening here by jumping quickly back to, keep your finger here, and uh, 1 Samuel 15. In 1 Samuel 15, we see King Saul being instructed to cleanse the land and to wipe out the Amalekites. And so he does this, but in verse 9 of 1 Samuel 15, verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag. So Agag was the king of the Amalekites. The Amalekites were wiped out, but Agag, the king, was spared. 
and, and I think Saul is kind of thinking, his thinking is, well, if I set up a tradition where we spare the king, in case Israel should ever be captured, uh, hopefully they'll spare me. And the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. Verse 20. And Saul said unto Samuel, Yes, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and I've brought Agag the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Verse 32. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came unto him delicately. This is a powerful king who is suddenly vulnerable, and he's coming hoping his life will be spared. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. Verse 33, And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. So tradition is that uh, Samuel had, um, Saul had also spared one of the women, one of the wives of Agag, and that she was pregnant. And the Agagites come from that line. So the Agagites are a subset of the Amalekites, which were wiped out. And Haman is a descendant of King Agag. And Saul was a Benjamite. So the Benjamites wiped out, or, or the Benjamite is responsible for the death of Agag, but also, more importantly, maybe the other way around, the kingdom was stripped from Benjamin and given to Judah because Saul did not king, kill King Agag. So you can see bitterness on both sides going down from generation to generation. It would be something like now when we look in the Middle East where these people hate each other and they don't know why. It's just hatred that's been handed down from generation to generation. And so here we have a Benjamite and an, and an Agagite that hate each other. And somehow this hatred leads Mordecai to have some backbone because he's a Jew, more specifically a Benjamite, who's not going to bow to an Agagite. And yet when it comes to Esther, that's okay. It's okay for Esther to be taken by the king. Let's now go to chapter 4 and continue the story. Chapter 4 of Esther. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes. So Haman now uh, volunteers to pay $10,000 into the treasury if the king allowed $10,000, 10,000 um, shekels of silver. So I'm sure it's a lot more than $10,000. Uh, maybe it's $10 million. Um, in order to command the resources within the empire to destroy all the Jews. So this is, and the king now seals this command, and the command goes out to all the provinces that on such and such a day, they, they, were, they actually threw lots, Purim, to say which day the Jews should be massacred. And when Mordecai perceived all that was done, so he's now getting back at Mordecai, uh, Mordecai rent his clothes. So because of Mordecai's stubbornness, he has put the whole nation of Judah far and wide, everywhere, all over the empire, he has put the whole nation at risk because of his stubbornness. 
So he rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried a loud and bitter cry. And came, look at this, verse 2, and even came before the king's gate. For none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. Mordecai has no problem disobeying the king's commands when, when it touches him personally. But when there's opportunity for gain, it's like winning the lottery, that Esther should be taken into the palace. Well, that's okay. God's commands can be compromised. But when it has to do with personal hurt, he'll disobey the king. So here now he's breaking another command of the king to be in the gate with sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping and wailing. And many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So we're familiar today with the Holocaust, uh, Hitler and the Holocaust. So sort of take those images and and implant them here. So think of Haman as Adolf Hitler. And think of that Holocaust and how the Jews were destroyed. That's what's being set up here. And so all over the empire, there's tremendous grief, incredible grief about what's about to happen. Now we see a different Esther. So this is the pivot point, chapter 4. This is when we begin to see a different character developing in Queen Esther. So first she's completely passive. Everything, all the action in the first few chapters are done to her. Now in chapter 4, Esther begins to take action. And we need, to, we need to understand what is it that enables her to grow up and begin to exercise her will. Verse 4. So Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told it her. So they told her what Mordecai is doing. Then was the queen exceedingly grieved, and she sent raiment. So this is the first time we see Esther taking action. She sends clothing to clothe Mordecai and to take away his sackcloth from him, but he didn't receive it. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's chamberlains, whom he had appointed to attend upon her, and gave him a commandment to Mordecai. So now instead of Esther being bossed around, She's now issuing commands. So there's a shift taking place here. To know what it was and why it was. So Hatak went forth to Mordecai unto the street of the city, which was before the king's gate. And Mordecai told him of all that happened unto him and of the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the Jews to destroy them. And he gave him a copy of the writing of the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them. So he wanted Esther to actually see the command in writing. So he gave a copy to Hatak to show it to Esther and to declare it to her. Make sure she sees this and to charge her that she should go into the king. So Mordecai is now issuing a command to Esther, go into the king and stop this to make supplication unto him and to make a request before him for her people. So Hatak came to Esther and told her the words of Mordecai. Again, Esther spoke unto Hatak and gave him another command for Mordecai. So again, we're seeing now a woman 
that's beginning to exercise her will. And verse 11, all the king's servants and the people of the... So this is what the message she wants to send to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king into the inner court who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death. So, so you're asking me to go to the king. Um, excuse me, maybe you don't realize, but there's a law in Medes and Media and Persia that anybody who goes into the king who has not been invited will be put to death. Unless the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been called to come in into the king these 30 days. I mean, the virgins have been reassembled, and he's busy, so she hasn't been called. So it's been 30 days now. I would take a huge risk to just now appear before the king when I haven't been called. I, I could be killed. So again, we're seeing this woman growing up, and what we see now is her exercising her will, so much so that when Mordecai commands her to save the Jews, she basically says, mm, that's inconvenient. I, I could be killed. Verse 12. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther. So there's this back and forth between Mordecai and Esther. And he says to Esther, don't think within yourself that you shall escape in the king's house any more than all the Jews. You're Jewish. The command is to destroy all Jews. Just because you're in the king's palace, don't think you'll get away. You're, you're, you're just as vulnerable as the rest of us. And this is really the pivot point now. For if you altogether hold your peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. Now, we have to give Mordecai credit for this thinking. What Mordecai is saying to Esther is, we are covenant people. God has a covenant with us, and God doesn't break his covenant. So this command to destroy all the Jews, it can't happen. Somehow we will be delivered, because God is faithful. So he knows enough to say this, and again, we, we can't be terribly impressed with these people. They're, they're human beings, and we know human beings are complicated. We're kind of strong in one area and very weak in another. But, but here he's showing real strength. And, and maybe it is this um, crisis that they're in where they pull together and they're communicating with each other, and maybe there are leaders that are saying, no, here's what the covenant says. So one way or another, the covenant people have to be delivered. But you and your father's house shall be destroyed. So if you, if you think you can get away with this, no, you can't. Somehow the Jews will prevail, but if you don't help out now, you'll certainly be destroyed. And your father's house, you'll be wiped out. And who knows whether or not this is your moment. Maybe the whole reason things have transpired the way they have, so that you're in such a position in the palace that you are, is for this very reason, to save the Jews. And who knows whether you are come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Verse 15, 
Then Esther bade them, so again, Esther is acting, to return Mordecai this answer. Go and tell him this, verse 16. This is really the pivot point now for Esther. This is where she begins to grow up. Go, gather together all the Jews. So this young lady that we met, who is basically being pushed around by everybody, being told by everybody around her what to do, when to do it, what to say, what to wear, what to take, now suddenly she's changing. She's changing. She's the one issuing commands, not just to Mordecai now. So first it's back and forth with Mordecai. Now she's issuing a command to the whole nation. I shouldn't even say nation. To Jews all over the empire. Go gather, sorry, not the empire, Shushan. Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast for me and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. What I want to say to our young people is this is maturity. This is when maturity kicks in, when you stop thinking about yourself. And I've got to commend our young people. Uh, for As young as you are, your, your maturity surpasses many adults. And I think it's because you have this nature that you want to contribute. You want to be a part of something bigger than yourselves. And that's the hallmark of maturity. And this is where Esther begins to grow up. That instead of being wrapped up in herself, I could get killed. Now she's thinking of the community. She's thinking of the tribe. She's thinking of her people. And if she perishes, she perishes. Now, you know, there's some question here around her faith. Nowhere in this book of Esther is God's name mentioned. The king's name is mentioned over and over and over again, but God is never mentioned. But it's obvious that God is at work, and he's at work with covenant people that even if they fall down, God doesn't fall down. And so here she's beginning to realize that, yeah, we are covenant people. I'm going to take a risk here. Maybe I can save the nation, but, you know, if I perish, I perish. What matters now is can we save the nation? Now, this week, I had the pleasure of meeting a a man named John King, and he's the author of a book called Tribal Leadership, and he spent decades studying communities and organizations and cultures, and So he's written this book called Tribal Leadership. And and the premise is that as human beings, we are social creatures. We, We live in relationships to other human beings. That's who we are. And in studying multiple cultures, in fact, he grew up in an Indian tribe. So as a white man, but he grew up in an Indian tribe initially. I think his father was a missionary. And then he spent decades now studying organizations and gathering all kinds of data And he's developed a model, which I'd like to share with you. I I think it's intriguing, and I'm just going to modify it a little bit to, uh, to speak to us. And what he says in this model is that there are five levels of maturity. The lowest level, the most immature level, again, in relationship to each other, we're, we're, we're social beings. The lowest level of a relationship in a tribe is feeling alienated from the tribe. 
and wanting to, to undermine the tribe. And the theme, he basically says, if you listen to people's language, they'll use a lot of words, but if you listen to the language carefully, what they're really saying is life is awful. Life is awful. It's terrible. He says these people end up in destructive cults. They're the suicide bombers. They're the mass murderers. Because there's just no point in life. They, they just, there's no hope. The next level with respect to being a member of the tribe, they're ineffective. They don't really contribute anything. And the theme, if you listen to their language, the theme is, my life is awful. I know, I know people seem to be having a good life. I know it's possible to have a good life. I'm not having that. My life is awful. And so they, they are separate from the tribe. They're in the tribe, but they feel separate from it. And they're looking around, and everyone else seems to be having a good life. They don't think it's in the cards for them. The third level is where people actually become useful to society. They can actually contribute something to society. They have a talent. They have an ability. Their theme is, I'm great. And their ego drives them to dominate others. What was fascinating, what he showed me, is that two and three need each other. They are tightly coupled together. So whenever you have an organization where there's a superstar and a supporting cast, this is two and three working together. There's one person that's great, and everybody else is there to serve that person. And everyone else is kind of envious of that person. But so what? I'm great. Your life isn't. And there's this collusion that we agree I'm great, your life isn't great. And, and you actually, if you're in level two, you actually want to be around me because it reinforces your philosophy that your life isn't great. And I want you around me because it reinforces my philosophy that I'm great. The truth of the matter is those people that are trying to dominate others, that are trying to say I'm great, deep down inside, they're saying my life is awful. They're really a number two disguised behind a talent or an ability. We see this in the church. We see it with ministers. We see it with deacons. We see it with hosts. We see it with members. Where there's a collusion. We will agree, I'm great. And we will agree, your life is awful. And we will agree that I can dominate you. And you'll go to congregations and you'll see this. There's one member or a couple of members that are very strong and very dominant and they get their way and everyone agrees, well, my life's awful. So, yeah, go ahead. Level four is where we become productive. And it's where the thinking is, we are great. I'm not great. We're great. And it's about building stable partnerships. And, and what he said here, which is very interesting, he says, when we think of the fundamental relationship, what is the, the fundamental relationship? Most people think, he says, of a dyad, two. Husband and wife, two friends. He says the society reinforces this. If you listen to love songs, it's all about two people together. He says two people together are, is the most unstable partnership that always there will be this teeter-totter where one is trying to dominate the other 
and then the other is trying to, to get back into a position of superiority. And he said, the divorce rate is 50% because couples are so unstable. He says, there's not an engineer on the planet that would ever build a structure with two legs. The minimum structure that an engineer will use is three, a triad. That's where you get stability. And I thought about this, and at first I thought, is he speaking against marriage? And then I thought of the scripture, two are better than one, and a threefold cord is not easily broken. So you see the strength of three. And then I thought in marriage, if Christ is not in the marriage, the marriage is unstable. In partnerships, in friendships, if Christ is not between us, the friendship is unstable. If Christ is not between us, I can treat you however I feel. And then you'll feel resentment and want to to retaliate. If Christ is between us, just when I'm about to say that hurtful thing, I see Christ. Where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in the midst. And I, I, I suppress myself. I'm not better than you. I have no right to abuse you. So because of Christ in our dyad, I'm respectful. So this is very, very powerful stuff. This is where we are all important. You have something I don't have. I have something you don't have. And so we're looking now for stability in the, in the relationship. The highest level, he says, are people who say life is great. It's not just about us. It's, it's just awesome to be alive. I'm just going to modify this slightly to say, for, I think this is profound, but for us, let's just modify it slightly. where we will say, yes, we have these three levels of immaturity, even among Christians, where there are some that are life is awful, they're involved in Christian cults, they do destructive things, they're, they're willing to harm other people. Then we have a lot of Christians who, life is a trial. I know God is blessing some people, it's just not me. And they're full of complaint. And they are willing to work with Christians who are trying to exert domination over other Christians, so they can feel good about themselves because deep down inside, they think their life is awful too. Where we begin to get community is when we get to the thinking that 1 Corinthians 12, 12, that the church is a body with many members and no one member is more important than the other. We all need each other. When we start thinking like that, then we have stability. Because I'm just a member, you're just a member, but we're members of Christ's body. That's, I think, where we begin begin to be mature. The highest level of maturity now is where we say God is great. It's not that we're better than the world. Yeah, we're first fruits. We're in the body. But Christ came to sacrifice himself for the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We are that son. We are the body of Christ. We are here for the world. God is great. We work together as a team to sacrifice ourselves for the world. And and we're not better than anybody. We're just here to serve. And I think this is the kind of mature thinking that we need to have in the church. And this is where you see Esther move from to, my life is awful. I've basically been arrested. I do as other people tell me to do. I have no choices. Everything is determined for me. Two, I'm great. Sorry for your loss, Mordecai. 
sounds like you Jews are going to be wiped out, but I'm in the palace. It's okay with me. To finally getting to four, where, wait a minute, I'm part of this community. And I will sacrifice myself for the... I'm not more, I might be queen, but I'm not more important than anybody else in the community. The whole community is necessary. And I think, though, um, Mordecai and Esther never get beyond level four. It's about the Jews. And it's about how great the covenant people are. And they never go beyond that. But at least at level four, we're into positive territory. This is where we can really build uh, a strong community. It's funny, this uh, gentleman said to me as well, is that uh, a real community requires at least six people. That there are enough triads in six that you actually have a community. And I found it interesting that the Burlington congregation began with 12, six adults, and six children. So actually two communities. And that's the foundation of our, of our congregation. And then the leadership was, was a triad. Myself, Murray, Pastor Murray, and Deacon Jan. And so I think God just blessed us with this structure that now we can, we've been building on. And we have a real sense of community here where I don't, I don't see it where anybody in our community thinks they're more important than anybody else. We're all just members of the body. Each of us have different gifts. And we welcome the contribution of including our young people. Our young people are an essential part of our community. We wouldn't be what we are without the contribution of our young people. So Esther 4, verse 17. Mordecai went his way. And look at this. He did according to all that Esther had commanded him. It's the complete reversal now. First she's doing everything he commands her. Now he's doing everything that she's commanding him. Why? Because she has a vision for the community. She's now acting on behalf of the community. And that's what gives her authority. That's where her maturity comes from. That she's thinking beyond herself. Chapter 5 and verse 3. Here we see Esther goes beyond commanding the community to now commanding the king. So now the king asks her, what would you like? She uh, answers him in verse 4, If it seems good to the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto a banquet that I've prepared for him. And so the story goes on where now Esther gives commands to the king about what he must do. And again, this, this authority, this maturity comes because of her vision for the community. She's no longer acting in self-interest. Let's uh, jump to chapter 7. Actually, this is important because uh, chapter 5, verse 10, I'll just read this quickly. Uh, Look at Haman, and you can see that he's a level 3, but he's really a level 2. He's a level 2 masquerading as level 3. Verse 10, nevertheless, Haman refrained himself, and when he came home, he sent and called for his friends, and Zeresh, his wife. So, level three, I need level twos around me. And Haman told them the glory of his riches, and the multitude of his children, and all the things wherein the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the princes and servants of the king. So, the level three, it's, I, I need witnesses. I can't enjoy my level three if you're not miserable around me so that I can tell you how great I am. Verse 12. 
Haman said, moreover, yes, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king unto the banquet that she had prepared except for me. Level three. I'm great. And tomorrow I'm invited unto her also with the king. My life is great. Verse 13. I'm really ma- I'm level two masquerading as level three. Verse 13. Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. So there's somebody that is not acknowledging that I'm great. And I can't, st- I have all this. Nobody goes into the banquet with the queen and the king except for me. Look at all my children. Look at all my riches. I'm great. But my life is awful as long as I see Mordecai and not bowing down to me. So we mustn't be fooled by level threes. We mustn't be fooled by bullies. We mustn't be fooled by people who are trying to demonstrate how great they are. All it, so anybody who wants to demonstrate to you how great they are, what they're really saying is, I'm this little child inside who's scared. I'm afraid nobody loves me. I'm afraid that you might not respect. I'm afraid that if you find out all of my flaws, you won't love me. That's what level three is. Level four is, I'm totally flawed, but, but I'm part of a community, and I have something of worth to contribute, and the community contributes the things I lack. Level five is, I don't need to be great. God is great. God has a plan. And, and ultimately, the whole creation will glorify God. And so I'm going to work with the community to bring in the whole creation to God so that everybody can demonstrate their greatness, which glorifies God. So Haman is level two, masquerading as level three. Chapter seven. Chapter 7, Haman goes in, uh, he realized he's found out, the king leaves, he throws himself on Esther's bed to plead for his life, the king walks in, verse 8, uh, second half, will, will he force the queen also in front of me in the house? As the word went out from the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And Harbona, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, behold, the gallows 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai who had spoken good of, good of the king, for the king, stands in the house of Haman. Then the king said, hang him thereon. So everything that Haman set up for himself, Mordecai enjoyed. And everything that he set up for Mordecai, he suffered. So you just see what happens when people abuse God's people. You know, I think we should be terrified of ever harming one of God's covenant people. God will act. Chapter 8. So chapter 8 now, um, verse 3. Esther spoke yet again before the king and fell down at his feet and besought him with tears to put away the mischief of Haman. So even though Haman's been hanged, the word of the king has gone out. And once the king of Persia speaks, it cannot be reversed. So she's now working now with the king. Uh, against the device that uh, Haman had devised, the Agagite, verse 4. So the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it please the king, if I found favor, here's what you should do. So now she commands the king what he can do to reverse the wickedness of Haman. 
So uh, you can read the story yourselves. I'll, I'll, I'll go through this. I'll skip through this. Um, but let's pick it up in verse 15. And Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel, blue and white. So Mordecai has now been promoted to second in command and with a great crown of gold. So this man that was basically to be destroyed, along with all of his people, Haman the Agagite and his sons are all destroyed, and Mordecai is promoted to second in command, with a great crown of gold and with a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. And the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And so this is where they now institute the Feast of Purim, which is the Feast of Lots, because Haman threw lots to determine which day the Jews would be destroyed, and God acted to protect the Jews. And so now they celebrate this, this feast. And verse 17, And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. And many of the people of the land became, this is, many of the people of the land became Jews, for fear of the Jews fell upon them. So it's obvious to everybody that these are people of God, and God has acted miraculously to save them. So as I conclude, brethren, I'll say this, and again, um, to our young people, uh, you're part of this community. Uh, young people are the most vulnerable. It's easy to abuse young people. I just spoke about this uh, in the news this week, this pastor that has been abusing uh, the young ladies in the congregation, under the noses of the parents. Uh, it, you know, and you can tell the health of a society by how it treats its ladies. Uh, we rejoice in having you as a part of our community. We, we rejoice in your gifts, your intellect, your talent, your leadership abilities. You're not oppressed here. We, we want to see your, le- your leadership, your abilities do not make us insecure. They make us joyful. Watching you mature, watching you grow up makes us joyful. And, and wherever you go, make sure you're around people that celebrate your abilities, that don't oppress them. And the Bible can be used, the Bible can be abused to tell you, be in your place, you're nobody, be under my feet. This is not Christianity. Christianity is, let's conclude in 1 Corinthians 12, where we see what real Christianity is. First Corinthians 12 and verse 14. For the body is not one member, but many. So here in this congregation, the body is not any one member. It's all of us. I could go further and say the body is not any one congregation, but many. It's not one organization, but many. The body is everybody who has the Spirit of God. And and we should respect ourselves and work together to do God's work, which will get us to level five. Verse 15, if the foot shall say, my life is awful, level two, my life is awful. Is it not of the body because it's a foot? Verse 16, and if the ear shall say, you know, if I can't do what Ray's doing, my life is awful. Level two. If the foot shall say, if the eye shall say, 
sorry, if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body was an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole body were hearing, where were the smelling? But now has God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it has pleased him. Wherever we are in the body, it pleases our Father to have us there. Whatever gifts, whatever abilities, whatever intellect, any capabilities that we have, use them and contribute to the body. And don't let anybody suppress that. We should be respectful to each other, but we should be encouraging each other to share our, to realize our potential. How sad to be called Christian and go to the grave with your potential. How tragic when you could have released your potential and contributed to the body and advanced the cause. The church is in difficult times. Just as Judah was in difficult times in the time of Persia. And Mordecai had to say to this young lady, who knows if you've come into the kingdom, into the palace for such a time as this. The church is in difficult times. And what I'll say to our young ladies and to our young men, who knows if you've come into the church community at such a time like this, that God has a special purpose for you. Realize your potential and contribute your gifts and abilities. We value that. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org. Thank you.